So in Genesis 20, we continue on. And uh, last week, chapter 19, we looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's one of those chapters, you're reading it and you're constantly amazed by how horrible uh, things have gotten. And, and then looking at the hand of God and, and how the, the judgment was cast over this wicked, wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but looking at the compromise of the life of Lot that led to total destruction. Now, God was merciful and God spared Lot and his family, but only he and his two daughters uh, made it out. Because as we know, his wife turned back. She looked back. And, and we, as we studied that, it wasn't even just about the fact that she turned to check it out, like look at the destruction. She looked upon it, gazed upon it, and desired to go back to Sodom. And that was because of the compromise of Lot. The way that he led his life and led his family was full of compromise. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. He shouldn't have been entertaining the things that he was entertaining. Remember, he even tried to call these wicked people of Sodom to some sort of moral high ground in which they didn't possess. They had no understanding of. And yet he called them to some morality um, and that they would not walk in homosexuality, but that they would just not be so sinful. And so he offered his daughters, and then even the fruit of that was that his daughters then got him drunk and seduced him and got pregnant by their own father, and we see such wickedness coming forth out of the life of Lot, yet God calls him righteous. What mercy. And that's what we walked away with. And we walked away from the study last week thinking on the mercy of God in the midst of of compromise. So now we pick up with Abraham. Back to Abraham. We have all this, like, throughout these chapters in this study on the life of Abraham, is there's a lot of flip-flopping back and forth, and we have Abraham, and we talk about Lot, and back to Abraham a little bit, back to Lot again, and here we are, chapter 20, Abraham again, and even in Abraham's life, it's like, here's good chapter on Abraham, there's bad chapter on Abraham. There's Abraham walking in the promise, confident in the promise, and then there's Abraham forgotten and forsaken the promise. And so today, in chapter 20, we're going to see a little bit more of the forsaking of the promise of God as we begin there, verse 1. And it says, and Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, Abraham journeyed from there in the place that he was in. And if you remember, as we talked about last week, he had the ability to overlook and to see the valley and and to see Sodom and Gomorrah. And we saw that he went out and he looked upon the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so now there's been some time of him experiencing the destruction. He's seen the destruction. He watched this this city, this great city destroyed. And even in that, trusting God for the deliverance of Lot, but now he's fleeing from the place that God had ordained for him to be. And fleeing from that place, I believe, is much of a uh, running from the reminder of the destruction. 
If you remember in chapter 18, he pleaded with God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He pleaded with God repeatedly and asked God if there be 50 righteous, if there be, and he goes all the way down, if there be 10 righteous, and, and he knew even that there wasn't 10 righteous, but God spared Lot and his family, and Abraham trusted in that. But here he's still looking out over it. He still sees the destruction. Maybe it wasn't as pleasant to the eyes as it once was, or maybe there's even this fear of destruction that would reach to him, to his family, and a little bit of uncertainty in his life, and so he, fleeing from the reminder of the judgment and from the destruction, he went to dwell in Gerar between Kadesh and Shur. Now he went, now the journey, the, the way, the route that he would take was on the way, and he went along the way is what we see here, and this is what would be translated to us, is that he went along the way of Egypt. Now, if you were with us and you studied with us, or maybe you've heard the stories before, in Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but we studied already in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham, before he was Abraham, he was Abram, went to Egypt. And out of that, he walked in this compromise, in this sin, and he lied about his wife being his sister. It was bad fruit that came from that. He had not remembered the promise of God that happened right before it. Now, so he went the way of Egypt. Egypt was bad news. Egypt was a place representing sin and bondage and compromise. That's what it carried for Abraham in his past. And yet he went the same route. Easy to go back the way that we may know. Even when I'm not going to go all the way to Egypt, but I'm just going to take that road because at least I know the way. I know the journey. Now, notice that God did not call Abraham to go anywhere. When God calls Abraham, he makes it clear to him, but here he does not call Abraham to go anywhere. But Abraham goes. He leaves he journeys along the way toward Egypt. You see, Abraham was not under the influence of the Lord. This was a decision made under his own influence, under his, in his own understanding, in his own idea of, you know what, I, I'm going to move on from here. Even perhaps thinking, well, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and that was representing the wickedness, and now I can kind of move on. And I already forsook Sodom and Gomorrah, so now I'll move on to the next thing. With the idea in mind of, I've got this. I can make this decision on my own. I can take the next step of even thinking it's a step of faith. And we'll do this type of thing sometimes. We will try to rationalize kind of ridiculous decisions and think, it's a step of faith. Is it, though? Is it truly under the influence of God? Is it truly the spirit-filled and spirit-led decision? Or is it just in our own understanding thinking, I can do this. I know what I'm doing. I know the road. I know the journey. And even that Egypt got me once, but it won't get me again. But let's continue because we're about to see what fruit comes 
of this little bit of compromise of taking matters into his own hands. Verse 2. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. I am not reading chapter 12, I promise. We're, yeah, here we go again. You scratch your head and you think, wait a minute, didn't this already happen? Yes, it did. And it's not a repeat. It's Abraham doing the same thing that he already did. Sarah is my sister. You see, when you make your own decisions in the flesh and go the way of Egypt, expect the fruit of Egypt. Expect the bondage. Expect the turning back to the sinful ways. We can't expect to go back to Egypt. We can't expect to take matters into our own hands and think that I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to overcome this time. I've got the strength within myself. I've, I've learned to lean on the Lord a bit more. I've learned a lot in this time that I've been away from Egypt. And I'm not going to go all the way there. I'm just going to go along the way there. Making home with the Philistines. That's who these people were, the Philistines. Now, do you guys know what comes of the Philistines? How about Goliath? Right? How about this, this whole race of people that are intentionally seeking to destroy the Jewish people? Intentionally seeking to destroy, even to break the lineage of Christ. Listen. That's what this story is all about. There is this work of the enemy, guys, that is out to destroy the work of God. It's out to distort the perfect plan of God or the perfect promise of God. Now, we've talked about it before that the lineage of Jesus Christ himself would come from Abraham. So keep that in mind as we continue in our study here, that the lineage of Christ would come through Abraham, the promised son, Isaac, and let's check it out what's about to happen here. As Abraham, so um, Abraham had a legitimate fear for his family, and he had a legitimate fear for his life. There's no doubt there's legitimate fears and difficulties in life. It doesn't excuse us to sin, though, does it? We think, oh, man, I'm afraid. I'm just going to do this, and then I'll ask forgiveness later. He feared for his family being separated. But ultimately, as we've seen so far, even in Abraham's life, he has these moments of forgetting or forsaking the promise of God. He feared that he might miss out on the promise of God. And it's the same lie as before because of fear. Because of not trusting things into the hand of God, thinking that somehow God had forgotten the promise. We play, we try to play God. We try to step into that role and remind God of the promise and think, no, no, God, you forgot. 
It can't work out that way. We have to look out for our safety. I have to look out for the, for the well-being of my, my wife and my, you know, my soon-to-be son that you promised, and here we go, and, and what's going to happen? If I'm put to death, then nothing, nothing's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. We think we know how it's supposed to happen. Abraham did not learn from experience which would tell us that age and experience is not an automatic sanctifier. Sometimes we think because of the things we've been through in life, we are more sanctified. Are we, though? Maybe we're living our whole lives and we're just doing what we want, and then we fall back into the sinful ways, thinking that just because of experience and age, we're sanctified. Or we're more sanctified. We're only more sanctified if we are under the influence of God. We need constant submission to God to bring forth sanctification. We have, a, we have an opportunity. You see, sanctification is a process, and, in, and within it, there's opportunity. We can take opportunities for sanctification, or we can fight against sanctification. Now, I, I joke about snow, how much I hate it. And it just, it just gets messy. Like, look outside, guys. Come on. This is not great, all right? Maybe for a minute. It's like, wow, it's so pretty. It's white. And there's, there's great spiritual things. He, he takes our sins, though they may be as scarlet. He makes them white as snow. And we love that. And we get this picture. And, and the snowflakes are these beautiful things. You look under a microscope, and it's glorious. And not each one is different. And all it's, it's amazing, right? And we can spiritualize it. And it's a great time. But I hate snow. And I try to get, you know, have a good attitude as much as I can. But it always brings a mess. It always brings hard work. It always makes me have some sort of pain and suffering along the way. My kids are like, yes, no. We get to go sledding. I'm like, yes. I get to shovel the driveway so that you can go sledding. But I, you know, so I, I joke and I say, I, I'm praying for no snow. Every winter, I'm praying for no snow. But I'm also praying for sanctification. And so then God gives snow so that I can work out sanctification. So I'm sorry. Obviously, it's my fault. I needed more sanctification. That's why we have a foot of snow outside. But sanctification is an opportunity. God will, we, we can say, God, sanctify me. It's not a magical sanctification that happens. God gives us opportunity to be sanctified and to choose to walk in the Spirit when there's snow or when there's, you fill in the blank of the things that you're just like, oh. It takes hard work in that moment. It takes, it takes effort to walk in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. So verse 3, as we continue, we see, but God, good news. Whatever we see that in the Bible, it's good news. It means things are not going well, and God's about to turn it around. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. 
But God came to Abimelech, this pagan Philistine king. God came to him in a dream. Why? Because Abraham was being a punk. He wasn't listening. He forgot the promise. He forsook the promise. And because he wasn't walking in the spirit under the influence of God, God had to get a hold of the pagan king in his sleep. Let it not be so, guys. Let it not be so of us that we are so hard-headed and so taking control of everything for ourselves and walking under our influence. We're walking in the power of our strength and in our flesh that we're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then God has to show up and be like, you know what? You're not doing what I told you to do. You're not doing what is right for you. You are walking, you're you're not walking in the spirit, but walking in the flesh. So guess what? I'm going to use the pagan king to set your course straight or to bring even conviction over you, which is what we're gonna see here. But God, in a dream, now one, when Abraham failed, God still does exactly what is needed. In his sovereignty, God shows up. In his mercy, God shows up. He does what's needed to fulfill his promise and to protect his perfect plan. Abraham thought he was protecting God's plan. Abraham thought he was helping to direct God's way. But Abraham messed up. So God steps in. Also, we see that God does not need us, but desires to use us. God still does what needs to be done. Abraham could have totally messed things up here. The whole lineage of Christ in Abraham's strength could have literally been completely wiped out or put in doubt under Abraham's strength under man's strength, but God. He steps in, he shows up. He, he, gives this, uh, he shows up in a dream to Abimelech, and, and that's a point that we, we recognize, that it's even in a dream to this pagan king. God uses dreams. Now, let's not get caught up in this idea that like, oh, yes, I have dreams, and God speaks to me through dreams, and that means I should do this or do that or do this or do that. And it's the signs and wonders that we get all excited about. But listen, this God showed up to an unrighteous man to perform a miracle, to stop, to put a halt on the annihilation of the lineage of the promise. That's what the enemy was out to do. And that came from Abraham's fear, from Abraham's dishonest uh, nature here, and, and it came from the Philistines. The Philistines are often used as a tool in the hand of the enemy. And that's what's taking place. But so it's God uses a dream here. And we I've heard and seen testimony of unreached people being spoken to in dreams. And let's let, bring the focus to that. It's unreached people who would be spoken to in a dream. It's not a, the, the, the dream, you know, people, we get caught up in the signs and wonders. Let's not get caught up. It's about God reaching people. 
And yes, God may speak in signs and wonders, but we aren't to be caught up in it because we have his word. We can hear from him plainly and clearly right here. We don't have to, give me a dream. Give me a sign. He's faithful. He'll speak. Seek him. Don't just seek him for signs, wonders, and answers. Just seek him. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. When he speaks, you'll know it. But here he uses a dream, and and in this, the word is, indeed, you are a dead man. Ouch. That's a scary thought, to hear in a dream the voice of God speaking to you to say, indeed, you are a dead man. That's the greeting. Many times in the Bible, there's angels that appear, and there's miraculous things that happen, and most often, the word is, do not be afraid, but God himself shows up in a dream to Abimelech and says, you've got something to be afraid of. You're a dead man. So yes, it's super scary, but also super important for God to intervene. As I said before, Abraham thought he was protecting God's promise. Instead, he was potentially destroying it. If Abimelech took Sarah and impregnated Sarah, which was the goal, because he took her, along with many other women, into his harem, and if he impregnated Sarah, then the lineage of promise would have been in doubt then there could have been this tracing back to, well, maybe Abraham wasn't the father. Maybe it was a Philistine. You see, that's what the enemy's trying to do, distort the truth. Distort God's promise. Even just a little bit of doubt would lack fulfillment. It would bring a lacking to fulfillment, but God's like, no way. This is going to be pure. This is going to be righteous. Look at God's perfect plan. He's going to work it out, guys. And as we study in Genesis, I'm truly amazed. And this is the beginning. It's so important to understand God's order and God's plan from the beginning. And then throughout all of history, it's all been happening according to God's perfect plan, which gives us great confidence and hope that things are still happening, and they will happen according to God's perfect plan. And God will use even pagan kings and rulers to do his work. He might show up in a dream. He might scare somebody literally to death. That's what's happening here with Abimelech, scared to death. But this is so important because God is protecting the lineage that would lead to Christ. He sets things straight. He already destroyed the world with a flood to clean things up. And now he's protecting the lineage. Verse 4, but Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, he is my sister? And, she even, uh, and even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So Abimelech, he stays away from Sarah, and he thinks that he had something to do with it. He stayed away from Sarah because of the hand of God. And now Abimelech, is th- now he's going to plead with God to save his life. Whoa, hold on a minute. <laughs> I'm a dead man? Wait, 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 wait. He told me it, that she was his sister, and she said, it's true, she was, that he was her brother. It's not my fault. Now, the word he uses here is, it's integrity. This is all right. This is okay. Does this seem okay to you, that this king comes and takes these women into his harem and then is sleeping with all of them, and this is the life that he lives? That's integrity on his standard. The Philistines. This is the the tool in the hand of the enemy, and that's what integrity looks like to the enemy. We shouldn't, and I, we talked about it last week with the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. We shouldn't be surprised by the wickedness of the world. The enemy is at work in those who are separated from God. Those who do not have a relationship with Jesus, the enemy is at work and stirring things up. And we as believers need to be different, not like Abraham. We need to be different, set apart for every good work. But he pleads his case and he's, you know, he's saying, it's not my fault. This was done in integrity and the standard of integrity is ridiculous. And, but now God shows mercy and even agrees to that statement. Yeah, your standard of integrity. I understand you thought it was integrity in your own twisted way. But then God sets the record straight because that's what he does. He doesn't share credit. God's like, you didn't touch Sarah because I wouldn't allow it. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. God is in control of this entire situation. He is in control throughout all of history, and he's in control for all eternity. And this wicked king, Abimelech, thinks that in all integrity, in all sincerity, I did nothing wrong. And God's not even going to get into that argument with him, nothing wrong. I kept you from sinning. I protected my lineage. I kept you from touching Sarah. God takes the credit for protecting Sarah and for protecting the lineage of the promise. What Abraham was trying to do, Abraham was trying to play God. And God took matters back into his hands, and God takes the credit for it. When Abimelech tries to step in and think, it's not my fault, but I took care of it, don't worry. And then God calls out, at the same time calls out the sin of Abimelech. He calls it out and he prevents it, but it, it didn't even occur to Abimelech that God was in complete control. Because that's the wickedness of the world. 
thinking that they've got control over a situation and thinking that I can plead my case with God and I can work this out and I can strike a deal. But not giving credit to God, recognizing that he's the one in complete control. He's the one in complete control over everything, guys. Look at the world we live in in the last few years, the last two years now. I can't believe we're still talking about the coronavirus. Two years. But the reality is that, that all the powers to be, the, the rulers of this world, are trying to figure things out and then think that they could take credit for some advancement in technology or advancement in the, in the medical world to say, look at what we've got to offer you in the treatment now. And the numbers are here and they were here two years ago and now they're here. And, and we have none of it. Listen, God is in complete control. That's all there is to it. And just recently, we're finally hearing people admitting, you know what? I guess we can't really figure COVID out. Not many, but some are admitting it. I'm like, from day one, I was like, you know what? I don't know what's going on, but I'm just going to live my life to trust Jesus and walk with Jesus because I have no idea about this other stuff. I could have ideas. It doesn't really matter. What matters is Jesus is on the throne. God is in control. In the midst of all of it, of course, we have an election and everybody gets upset about what happens in an election. Calm down. Jesus is on the throne. God is in control. But you see, the powers of this world, they don't want to give credit to God. When God is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. I withheld you from sinning. I did not let you touch Sarah. He thought he had complete control. And we've seen it in our study in the Gospel of John. Pilate thought he had it all under control. Yeah, the Jews had him wrapped around their finger. And Jesus is like, nobody takes my life, but I give up it. God is in complete control. And sometimes, you know, God will prevent us from sinning. In his sovereignty. But he still calls us. He calls out our sin and calls us to repentance, which is to make it right, to change direction. And that's what he does here. In verse 7, he says, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Go make it right. So he calls out his sin and calls him to make it right, to restore. It's a call to repentance, yet Abimelech doesn't even get that. He says, restore the man's wife. And then God calls Abraham a prophet, a sinful man, but a prophet, and a prayerful man. God is merciful to Abraham. Because of his dedication and because of re relationship and prayer, God would call him a prophet. And God in his mercy, in his sovereignty, is directing Abimelech. At first he said, indeed, you're a dead man. Make it right. 
That's his mercy, giving the opportunity. Now, verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. Abimelech responds to God in healthy fear. And out of that comes obedience. He goes right to, guys, we got a problem. I don't want to be a dead man. I've got to respond to this. He tells them everything about it. And they have a gathering and a hearing of sorts. And, and so now the response in all of them is fear. Now, verse 9, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Abimelech, in his power still, is like, I'm going to confront Abraham. Right? So he, he's afraid. He is scared to death because of this dream, because of God saying to him, indeed, you're a dead man. Go make it right. Give the man's wife back. And now he's like, okay, but first I'm going to confront Abraham. Just like in chapter 12, though, Abraham is confronted by a pagan king. Again, let me say, guys, let it not be so. That our sin should be seen and identified and called out by the world. Let it not be so. Abraham is confronted by a pagan king, a Philistine king, who is a tool in the hand of the enemy. Abraham blew his witness big time. And God labels him a prophet to Abimelech that would call for greater accountability. Imagine Abimelech hearing God say, a prophet, a prophet who lied to me, who allowed his wife to be turned over to me, and now he goes to him, you have done these deeds, you have done things that ought not be done by anyone, especially a prophet. And what he's saying in this statement is that there is no good reason for this. You have no excuse. But, verse 10, then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? So he's saying, first of all, there is no good reason, no good excuse for this. What's your reason? Tell me, why did you do this? What did you have in view? And, and what, he's, what we would Take away here is that you, Abraham, a supposed prophet, what do you know that I don't know? What would make you do this? What would make a prophet do these things? And guys, listen, there's times that the world could look at you, could look at the church and say, what would make the church do that? Why? You call yourself a Christian. Why? Jesus prayed that we would be one. Why would the world be able to look at us and say, man, the church is completely divided? 
and caught up, Abraham caught up in the midst of this grievous sin, this lie, and Abimelech pointing it out to him, saying, why you, a prophet, a righteous man, a Christian, why would you do this? But what, did you, what do you know that I don't? What would make you act this way? And then saying ultimately, but tell me your excuse. Explain yourself to me. That's his demand as a king, as he would with anyone. You tell this to me. Give me your reason. And Abraham said, verse 11, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. Now here's the centerpiece of the whole thing, fear. Now, his excuse is, I, sh- I thought surely the fear of God was not in this place. And then he goes on to talk about the fear that he has of man. So he's trying to identify their lack of fear, for God, fear of God at the same time of, as identifying his own lack of the fear of God. He's making a confession without even noticing it, but that's the problem, isn't it? Fear is the problem, and that was Abraham's excuse that there's no no fear of God here. This is a wicked people. Is that an excuse to sin? Well, the wickedness abounds, so I'll just join in. Or or you wicked people, what difference does it make that, that I would lie? comparing himself to the ways of the Philistines. Fear, of course, that they would take his wife and that they would kill him. You see, Abraham lacked a fear of God himself. And he accused them of the same thing. But he feared man. He feared man more than he feared God. And that fear is a dangerous thing, the fear of man. In fact, listen, it was the fear of God that changed Abimelech's ways, for a moment at least. The fear of God was like, whoa, he couldn't sleep through the night. He was woke, he had this dream, and then he came and brought it to his leaders and, and had this whole hearing about it and had this whole discussion to come away with, we gotta do what God said. And he's gonna try to do it his way, but it was the fear of God that protected Sarah and caused Abimelech to respond to God. Verse 12, but indeed... Now, Abraham continues in his horrible excuse. But indeed, she is truly my sister. He just doubled down in this lie, right? But now he's got an explanation for it. Okay, well, listen up. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Okay, so... This is Abraham trying to explain. Now, it's a half-truth, basically, is what he's saying. No, really, she is my sister, and that's why I said it. That's why I told this lie. 
No, that's not why you told the lie. You told the lie because you were lacking this fellowship with God. You were lacking the fear of God, and you took matters into your own hands. And that's the fruit, guys. The fruit is not only being caught up in the lie that feeds the enemy, but at the same time, we double down and we sound really foolish. No, truly, and we try to find that little bit of truth that could fit into our story. No, no, really, I wasn't telling a lie. It's a twisted truth, a half-truth, which would be a whole lie. And this is even further a sure way to destroy your witness. He already did, but now he's making himself look even worse. And what's worse is he is making God look worse. A prophet, a Christian, as I said before, let it not be said of us. That we get caught up in the lies of the enemy, we get caught up in sin, and then when it's pointed out, we just double down and we keep going. You see, Abraham thought that lying would have no effect. Lying to the world would have no effect here, but it defames and it disgraces the name of God. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now he keeps going. He's got excuses. He's got self-justification. He's, oh, no, 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 I'm not totally telling a lie here. She really is my half-sister and this, you know. Now he keeps going, and he, he's blame-shifting on top of it. It's God's fault. He's trying to blame God. So not only has he disgraced and defamed the name of God unintentionally, indirectly, now he directly is throwing God under the bus to the world. And aren't we so good at shifting the blame? It's not my fault. God caused this. Because why? It says that he caused us, he called us to wander. Now, the word that's used for wander here isn't just like this aimless, like wandering. Oh, you know, God called me to be a wanderer. He could have used that word, but this word that he uses in the Hebrew would indicate, it translates to that he strayed. That he strayed from the path. That he it's a, it's a word that was used of animals that would just go, go astray. And that's the word that he uses, that God caused me to go astray, not to just get lost and wander off accidentally, but in intention. That's what it's talking about here for the word wander. And when he's saying, look, when he's saying, God caused me to wander, it's really hard. This life that God has called me to is so difficult. It's such a high calling. And, and God caused me to wander. God caused me to do these things that, you know, these things that I don't really mean to do. And it's just so difficult to live in the wilderness. And, 
I, I plan for this protection with my wife be, you know, uh, because of what God has called us to. Because of all the people that we would encounter, we have this plan. The word wander would even further indicate this intent of mindlessness. Ignoring the truth. Ignoring the safe place that God has set up for us. The protection that God already has. But yet Abraham thinks, no, this is the protection. This is the safe way. And so he strays from that. And mindlessly goes, thinking, I don't care. And he says that, he uses that word and blames God for it. God made me run away. That's basically the word here. And we've heard it before. Within the church, well, God didn't show up for me. Or the the church, the body of Christ, just the worst. Yeah, people failed, okay? Just a bunch of hypocrites, yes. We're all sinners, but we can admit it, right? And people would claim that they walk away because they've been damaged by God. They've been damaged by the body of Christ, making excuses. And that's Abraham. And he's making that excuse to a pagan king in Abimelech. Throwing God under the bus. Now, he made excuses. He blamed God. He could have and should have humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. You want to know how to shock the world? Humble yourself. If you wrong somebody, no, you wrong somebody altogether, even if you're, you think you're right, like, no, I'm right. I'm gonna, it doesn't matter. If you humble yourself and ask forgiveness, it's done. People are completely disarmed by humility. The world, even more so, would be disarmed by humility. Shocked. If, if Abraham said to Abimelech, I have sinned grievously. Before you and before God, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Imagine that. Abimelech's jaw would have been on the floor like, ah, uh, Hmm, uh, 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 I don't know what to say. It completely disarms people. But he didn't do that. He indirectly and directly throws God under the bus. And then verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Well, this is a nice response, isn't it? You think the guy's angry, fuming, and you know what he's doing here? He gives these great gifts to Abraham, heaping coals of fire on his head. Every sheep and oxen and male and female servant And even where he would go and make his dwelling place would be a reminder of his grievous sin against God and man. 
In Romans chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's what Abimelech is doing. As directed, as God's hand is over this entire situation, and Abraham would have that bitter reminder Every single time he looks out to the pasture and sees those sheep and the oxen and the servants that have been given to him and the dwelling place that's been given to him, not able to rest in that because of his sin, because of his compromise. Verse 16, then to Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked. Now, as he said, I've, behold, I have given your brother. This is, you can like take this big sarcastic statement here. I have given your brother that's the idea of what he's saying to her here. Like, yeah, your brother, wink, wink, you know? And even in that statement, it's just, man, he is expressing his disgust for the sinful ways of the supposed righteous. Let it not be so, guys. Let it not be said of us, the body of Christ. And she was rebuked by the Philistine king. It says before this that she was restored to her husband, that it was made right. She was made right because of Abimelech's rebuke and because of her submission to her husband. Abraham said it, that he told her. He said, do this for me. In every place, wherever you go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, we just studied recently on Wednesday nights through 1 Peter. And when it talks about a wife submitting to the husband, we talked about this. We went to this passage right here. And this was great submission. And in this great submission, it was counted as faith. It's a great step of faith to be in submission even when it's unrighteous. Even when it's a terrible decision that your husband has made. But yet, it was for her righteousness. It was for her faith. And so she was restored to her husband. While the king is expressing his disgust for Abraham and his actions. And then we close in verse 17 and 18. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech his wife and his female servants, then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Just to make sure to protect the lineage of promise, God closed up the wombs. To make sure there's nothing that's gonna get you know, uh, misunderstood 
in this whole plan, in this whole story, you think, well, for just this short time, for just this one night, Sarah was with the king, and, and one of these children could be the children of promise that came. No, there's no children. Abraham prayed, and a broken man, at this point, imagine the humiliation of Abraham being called out by this pagan king, being, his sin being pointed out to him and, and broken before the Lord. Even God said that Abraham would pray, and now Abraham prays for him, fulfilling this priestly and prophetic role. But he prays. Even in that, imagine the prayer, I don't feel like praying. There's those moments, perhaps, that you feel far from the Lord. You feel that you have failed, and maybe you have failed, and you're like, I don't feel like I can pray. When it talks about the relationship of a husband and wife, in Ephesians, it tells us to wash your wife in the water of the word so that our prayers would not be hindered. Now, looking at the way Abraham led his wife, did he wash her in the water of the word? No, he led her in unrighteousness, and yet she submitted. So you could imagine it would be easy for his prayers to be hindered. Yet God, in his mercy, he shows up. He takes care of this whole situation when Abraham tried to take care of the whole situation. And God, in his mercy, healed Abimelech, his wife, the servants, because he had previously prevented the fruit to protect the promised seed of Abraham. To make sure there was absolutely no doubt of that lineage of Christ that would be perfect. Remembering throughout all of this, guys, God has a perfect plan, and there is nothing that is going to prevent or overcome the perfect plan of God. Even us, even us in our own strength, in our own wisdom, our own understanding, trying to take matters into our hands. When we mess up, God shows up. He takes control of the situation. And listen, like Lot, we may really mess things up. Like Abraham, I mean, this, this is bad stuff here, but God is so merciful. And God would go on. The next chapter, next week, we're going to study the birth of the promised son, Isaac. It happens. God makes good on his promise, even though there's just all this forgetting and forsaking of the promise. Remember that. Remember the promises of God. Remember the hope that he gives us. And remember that Jesus was the plan. Redemption was the plan. And Jesus is still on the throne. And God is in complete control. It doesn't matter how Horribly, we may have messed up. We can make it right. Through relationship, and as it says of Abraham, he was a prophet and he was a man of prayer. 
come back to him in that prayer, in that relationship. Even though we mess up terribly, we can seek him. We can draw, we can ask him to forgive us and we can draw near and he draws near to us. Remember his mercy. It's greater than our failings. It's greater than all of the, th- the matters that we take into our hands. His mercy is more. His plan is perfect. Let's be in line with it, not fighting against it. Not taking matters into our hands, but entrusting them to him as he fulfills the promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we trust you. We thank you for your word and the, the hope that we have in your promises, the, the confidence that we have that you are in complete control. We remember that tonight. We remember your mercy and we remember your promises, God.